0: Dear Lord, we ask that through this class, you do nothing more than show us our need for Jesus and then give Jesus to us. Amen. Amen. All right. Interestingly, my prayer was a wonderful summary of what the prayer book is all about. I'll just let that hang there for a second. Um, Yeah, so we're starting a nine-week course. Nine weeks. You guys might be tired of it, but the goal is to give us enough time to devotionally theologically, historically, painstakingly, walk through our liturgy together. In a few weeks, we're actually I'm going to give you printed out versions of our of our leaflets with little annotations all over it, almost like a an insider's guide, right? A little cliffs notes for what we do. And that'll act as a good summary for the stuff that we learn over this course. And I encourage you, if this starts to affect and infect and enliven the way that you worship. We've achieved our goal, number one. But also tell someone else to listen to this class as we go through it. I spent a lot of time thinking about this um, and a lot of time preparing because I really believe it could be the part of a a revival that God's already sort of creating and and instigating by his spirit here at Advent. But I want to begin with some of the questions that I think some of you have and then allow you to ask some of those other questions. The presenting concern at the Advent, you know, what, what drove me to desire to teach this class? It had to do with a lot of conversations from you, it had to do with my experiences in worship, uh, especially with folks who've been around a while, actually, but also newcomers, you know. Um, some of you will disagree with this, but this is what I've heard from people. I feel like when I'm worshiping, it's just sort of dead. I feel like my soul is dead and that I'm not connecting with what's on the page. I feel like when we're singing, we're dead. I feel like when we're, we're engaging this, maybe at one time it was li- lively and powerful to me. But honestly, week to week, I only get little glimmers. For some of us, I've heard, I don't get anything out of this. Why do we do it this way? What's with all... And then specific questions like, why? what's with the procession? Why do we do this and that? Why does this happen in the service? What I hope is to start answering those kinds of questions, but not in a way so that we all kind of have insider knowledge so we can be holier than thou, and we can uh, feel better than other folks about what's going on. Rather, I hope that it actually ignites what Thomas Cranmer, the architect of the prayer book, would have wanted worship to feel like, which was an inflaming of your heart. He really wanted it to feel like that. you know. And I believe that ultimately that's an inside work, an inside job of the Holy Spirit, But the liturgy is meant to aid and abet that reality. It is to turn our hearts toward Jesus again after a week of slowly being turned away. So I know even as I'm saying that it's conjuring your own thoughts and feelings. And so what I would like to do is on that note card, spend three minutes right now, or the rest of the class period, if you want to ignore what I have to say, and and write down your questions. Uh, Write down your questions that you're bringing to the table when you come to this class. What I promise you is that over the next few weeks, I will read them and attempt, in, in my best judgment, to answer them over the next uh, nine weeks. So write down your questions. I'd encourage you to write genuine questions rather than criticisms or gripes disguised as questions. For example, why don't we sing more hymns by Charles Wesley? That's a question, but it's also a gripe, right? Why did we have a screen in worship a few weeks ago? That's a question, probably a gripe. Why does one of our priests look like he works way too hard on his hair with that gel? I'm not interested in your question about that, all right? We're looking for things you're curious about, perhaps particular aspects to our liturgy uh, and the way we enact our liturgy and the way we live it. And though no question is a bad question, if you feel embarrassed about your question, Feel free to write it anonymously. But I warn you, don't use anonymity to write a criticism because we can't have a dialogue about it. It's actually a principle among your clergy that we generally don't read anonymous letters. Why? Because there's nothing of value to go from it. All right? Every once in a while an anonymous letter is appropriate because it it has to disclose some legally crazy things. But a lot of times when we get letters anonymously, it's because someone wants to... Throw rocks behind a wall and not let you know who they are. Okay, anyway, I'm just on a soapbox about that. Write down your questions right now. Write down some questions you have. If you don't have any questions, just kind of hang on for a little bit and then we'll talk. Some might come up even in this class. Yes, are there any note cards around? Okay, got extras. Does everybody have a hymn as well? Here you go. All right. Anybody have the extra hymns, or do we pass them all out? We got some. Anybody need a sheet, a hymn that has walked in? I'm so glad you all are here. Thank you. No cards. Here's the keeper right here. need a note card? You can kind of just ask me at home, you know. You're sort of married to me, so. Sort of. You know what I mean? It's millennial speak. It's euphemistic, right? We don't commit. Millennials don't commit to anything. We just sort of float in a world of like, yeah, kind of, like, you know, whatever, you know, that kind of <laughs> stuff. That's that's just us. So, Abby, you're sort of married to me, all right? Okay. As you continue to write those down, make sure you get them to me at the end of class. Uh, maybe throw them on top of my computer right here, or leave them in front of here. If you leave them on your seat, they might get lost and then your question will never get answered, right? So make sure it comes to me. All right. We've got two go Oh, never mind. We've got two goals for this class. Two goals. This is what I'm after with us being together. Number one is to help us better connect head and heart. It feels like for a lot of us, this is the common theme I hear. It's a lot of heady stuff going on in worship. And I don't always feel that connection between head and heart. A big time goal is that we connect head and heart. I hope that there are times where we're actually crying in this class. That, that means I know that things are getting through to us if we're at that space of feeling it in our bones, right? And the second, oh yeah, look at this. This is what Cranmer wrote when he puts uh, the liturgy of, to paper in 1549. His purpose for worship is that the people should continually profit more and more in the knowledge of God and be the more inflamed with the love of his true religion. Now again, uh, love of his true religion sounds like, I don't know, I mean, I love Jesus, but I don't necessarily love religion and religious structures. You've got to understand this is old speak for relationship connection with God. So Cranmer was interested in that as we worship together, our knowledge of God, and by knowledge he meant actually knowing, not knowing about God, but knowing God. Our knowledge of God increases. And that as a result we become more inflamed with the love of his true religion. Why? Because it is is only as God does a work in our heart and births love and faith in us that good works and all the fruit of the Christian life start to flow. They can't flow by guilt. They can flow for a while, but they're, they're not perpetual. Only by being inflamed with love. Only when knowledge passes from the head and spills over into the heart, pouring out in the affections, as Jonathan Edward called them, do we have a robust Christian understanding of what it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. Second goal of this class is to tune our ears to hear the gospel in worship. Why? Because it's the gospel that is actually going to birth the love in your heart and nothing else. That's actually really important. It's really important to Advent. It's why we, why did they s- s- preach the same message every daggone Sunday? It's because we believe that only the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Only the gospel births in your heart what we need. <laughs> so all the things that we're clamoring for and craving out there in the world, <laughs> is provided in the gospel and it is going back to that source again and again that will birth the very love that causes us to love others and we watch the change occur in our lives and in the lives of those around us. So this class, I'm going to be pointing us again and again to help you hear the gospel more in our worship services. That's a, that's a really big part Some great ways to engage this class? Take some notes. Bring a notepad, right? And raise your hand and dialogue with me. I don't mind. I don't bite. No question's a bad question. An attempted outline of our time together. Here's basically how we're going to go. In the first few weeks, we're doing an introduction. Today's kind of like big overview. And then next week is going to be talking specifically about the 79 prayer book, the one that we're using and the way that Advent uses it. And then from there, we're going to spend the rest of our time actually going through the two main liturgies that we use on a Sunday morning, uh, morning prayer and Holy Communion. So we're going to spend some time in and with those words. And my hope is that as you do this and go back to worship and that, that dialogue between the classroom and worship itself, it starts to fan those flames and stoke what's going on in the heart. I really, really hope that that's true. How I hope each class time will go? More or less, more or less. I want to kind of instruct, lecture, teach for about 30 minutes. I want to try to open it up for Q and A and then I want us every time to sing a hymn that I will pick that will reflect a lot of the stuff that we talked about in class. Why? Because God has given music as a unique tool to sometimes break through your hard head to your heart. So that maybe even in this classroom, we might feel a little a little bit of those affective qualities as to, to how the liturgy is supposed to engage us. And maybe it just might help you to fall in love with some of the hymns we sing, for goodness sake. That would be wonderful too. All right. Today I want to walk through in brief three things that will kind of set the stage for our conversation. I want to walk through history, theology and heart of the prayer book, knowing that these things we will revisit time and again, week after week as we go through it. History, first of all, major dates, memorize all, there's a final exam. You got to know these at the end, okay? Um, I know these look like numbers. It looks like some sort of weird, uh, you know, beautiful mind algorithm on the board. But I just want, I don't necessarily need you to memorize them, but Some of these dates will be referred to time and again because significant things happened in the history of the prayer book at these moments, and I would encourage you to at least just know about them, right? 1549, the first English prayer book was produced. You must realize that before this year, Christians worldwide never who spoke English never heard or engaged worship in their language. This was the first time ever There may have been people doing like side worship projects where they'd gather a bunch of folks in their basement and praise God in the mother tongue. But never in the English speaking world before 1549 did anyone worship uh, in English. Now this created a huge class issue. Why? Because it was only the gentry and the upper class that knew Latin. So that means when the peasants came, they understood nada. They understood nothing. They were there as spectators to watch what was going on, not to participate, but just to watch the magic show, right? And even the, the gentry in the upper class, it was very passive, right? So this was revolutionary, that, an, that a worship service would be given, sanctioned in English, right? In 1552, Thomas Cranmer released a second prayer book with extensive revisions of the first one. There's lots of scholarly, historical, liturgiological debate about why so soon did he rechange everything and why they look so different. My perspective here is that 1549 was a half-measure because it was a way to introduce a really radical English-spoken liturgy to a bunch of people that were very much used to a Roman Catholic understanding of the way worship worked. And so 1549, by comparison, feels a lot more Roman. And so Cranmer in 1552 unfolds further changes to get it more in line with the gospel. More in line with the gospel. More conform to the doctrine, particularly of justification by faith alone. And I hope by the end of this class, you know why that's so important. And it's not just heady stuff that people talked about in the Reformation. So important, right? Um, and for that reason, in many ways, this is the hallmark. This is the one I've been studying for a while. Doing lots of comparison between our current prayer book and it. In order to investigate, you know, what are the differences? I'm actually, this weekend I've been writing a really long paper on the comparison of the two liturgies uh, for a doctoral class uh, so that we can unearth the theology behind it. Now... 1662 was another one, and oftentimes, this will start to sound familiar if you know died in the wool Episcopalians or people from the Church of England. Some people will refer to the 1662 prayer book. Why? Because it was reinstated then. When was it not in use? Well, uh, in the middle of this century, <laughs> there arose uh, a, a, on the continent, on in Europe, a big Roman Catholic uprising to sort of take over what was happening with Protestantism over the last hundred years. And that uprising on the continent started making people in England uneasy. It also made, kind of in the Church of England, the sort of people who tended to lean theologically more toward Rome uh, to rise up and say, maybe this is our time to take it back. But it also led people in response in greater opposition. These two parties were called the Laudian and the Puritans. This is where you start to, because the Puritans were looking for a more pure thing. And so they're interested in reaction to the Romanists to even go further. The Puritans took power in the middle of the century and banned the prayer book for use for many years. 1662 was the year that it was reinstated. So 1662 marks the year that they grabbed 1552 and said, it's no longer illegal to worship through the prayer book again. They made a few changes there in 1662. I think, actually, even those changes were away from Thomas Cranmer's vision, a little bit, you know? 1789, 1789, the first American prayer book, which makes sense because when was our nation founded? 1776, right? So, the Church of England in the United States is forming its own national denomination and expression of the Anglican Communion. And 1789 was that year that the first American prayer book and there, interestingly, I'd love to share the details, but there were some political things that were going on in who was going to be the kind of presiding bishop. And he was in cahoots with Scotland. And as a result of those cahoots, the 1789 prayer book um, departed even more from Cranmer's vision. So what we're seeing is a slow, and I would just say generally a slow movement away from the original Protestant, reformational vision that Matt preached about today, that we prize at the Advent, throughout these years. 1929, first um, major American prayer book revision. Sorry, 28. 28 was the year in which the General Convention of the Episcopal Church of the United States for the first time voted yay on changes to the prayer book. This was a significant year. It may be even more significant than 79. Those of us who are Episcopalians who have lived in the recent history, especially if you're from theologically conservative realms of Episcopalianism, uh, might think, because we've heard, because it's so recent, that 79 was the big departure. There was a lot of departure going on in 28 from Cranmer's vision. A lot of things got shifted in, in, um, in the liturgy. Again, we'll talk about that a little bit. And then finally, 1979, the second major American prayer book revision happened. When this occurred, it created a book that you and I now worship with on a regular basis on Sunday mornings. The Book of Common Prayer that's in our pews is the 79 revision. And Advent chooses, with the permission of our bishop, some unique workings with that. I will tell you, it's why, if you know anything about Rite 1 and Rite 2, it's why we use Rite 1 we actually aren't committed to the old language. We're committed to the theology of right one. So it's an odd thing that we play because we believe in Cranmer's vision of contextualization, which was it should be in sort of the vernacular tongue. It shouldn't sound foreign to us to speak these words to God. But right now for us, right one is the one we can use that's closer to 1662. Closer to... Quick and dirty history right there, all right? I want to ask another important question that's a little bit touchy for some of us, but I want to ask it because it's important because it colors the way we worship at Advent, and it's going to expose some things that might be a little surprising to us. Why does so much of the Episcopal Church today feel Catholic? It might come as a shock to you that worship we just experienced uh, would not have been present 150 years ago no episcopal church would have looked like that anywhere that might be a bit of an overstatement but it's not it's not that much to say that a lot of the things that if especially for people who have come from roman catholic backgrounds they're like oh this this feels familiar this it would have appalled the reformers that that was the case that that would have been one ex- one's experiences because one should feel and hear something very different the gospel distinctly in that moment. So the question is, why does so much of the Episcopal Church feel Catholic today? 1500s, the founding of the Church of England, it really was a Protestant vision. Matt talked in a sermon today about the Reformers. One of them in 1531, Thomas Bilney, got burned at the stake for proclaiming free grace in Christ, okay? Uh, So he kind of set the stage, but in the middle of the 1600s, as I said, Laudianism, Archbishop William Laud, that's what this is named after. He sort of wanted a return to some of the uh, Roman Catholic pomp and circumstance and maybe even some of the practices and maybe even some of the theology there. He wanted a return to that. So that kind of created a a polarization in the Church of England, the Laudians and the Puritans and then some people in the middle, uh, banning the Book of Common Prayer in 16. So there was a kind of Roman uprising, and so there was a first instance where people wanted more Romanist type of, of, of things in the Church of England. Now, again, America is not on the scene. Episcopal Church hasn't been founded, but this lingers in the conscience of the, Episcop- of the Church of England. But more important for us, if any of you were to study this movement called the Oxford Tractarian Movement in the late, uh, sorry mid to late 1800s, really significant for us. Really significant. Because basically, uh, Roman people very sympathetic to Roman Catholic practice, teaching, uh, and doctrine more or less took over power in the Church of England. Took over power. And the Episcopal Church in the United States was listening and watching and receiving this. It was during this time that you saw Episcopal Churches totally changed. Now, interesting factoid, our building. It was built in 1873, fired, and then it was rebuilt in 1883 to 1885. Were any of you around during that time? Just kidding, just (laughs) kidding. Um, It was rebuilt then and basically what you see is more or less with lots of cosmetic, you know, upkeep, the current look. What era does this put us in? The Oxford Tractarian Movement. Right at the height of it was when our church was built. They had the power, which means that the architects that designed it designed it to look and feel Roman Catholic. Do you realize that? That's why the pulpit isn't front and center. That's why it's off to the side. That's why you had a table, which until um, some years ago was actually affixed to the wall like an altar in Roman, which again, you have to realize that uh, the the reformers fought hard to undo. (laughs) So I just want to point all this out to say You know, why does Advent, for some of us, feel Catholic in that way? Well, there's lots of good reasons. There are lots of good reasons. So, that's a... Oh, so, um, today's Episcopal Church is an odd mixture. Today's Episcopal Church will be. And depending on the parish you go to, they might lean in one direction or another. But because of the way theology developed and the Episcopal Church kind of walked with that theology... Today's Episcopal Church is an odd mixture of a lot of Roman Catholic practice and lingering theology, co-mingled with an emphasis of modern theological liberalism, which might be fancy words that don't make sense, but I'm not talking about political liberalism here. I'm talking about something unique to the uh, way in the 20th century and 19th century people started doing theology and talking about biblical studies. There became became a radical shift in the way people talked about that, and that's influenced the Episcopal Church. It's influenced our prayer books. It's influenced the way we are. It's influenced uh, the people who went to Episcopal seminaries over the last hundred years, uh, right? So a lot of Roman Catholic practice commingled with emphases of modern theological liberalism, distantly haunted by evangelical Protestantism. (laughs) Somewhere in our consciousness, we're like, weren't we a Protestant church, you know? And Advent's been like, yes, we are. Yes, we are. That's what we're about. Uh, So at Advent, we're not distantly haunted by this stuff. You know, um, Advent is a church that we would describe ourselves as unapologetically evangelical and Protestant in the way that we think about, in the way that we understand the scriptures. All right, I want to talk about the theology for a little bit. Cranmer and Advent's vision for the prayer book hinges on an understanding of the Word of God. When I say the Word of God... Tell me what we often mean by that. Just go ahead and tell me. The Bible. Right. What else? Anybody else? Practice. Practice. Okay. Anything else?
1: Revelation of God.
0: Revelation of God. Okay. Yes. Those are all part of it. I will tell you that uh, the Reformers had a particular perspective on what the Word of God was. We think, uh, I'll just summarize it, then I'll explain it. The reformers said the word of God was ultimately Jesus as in John 1 Jesus is the word of God working faith into us by his spirit chiefly through the scriptures so i want to unpack this biblically for a second because and this is really important for the way Cranmer conceived the liturgy working on us is to understand the word of God and what it means all right Hebrews 4:12 to 13 for the word of God is living and active. Hold your Bible. Is this living and active? Yes, according to it. It's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul. And that sounds pretty deep. The Word of God works on us in a pretty deep way. Joints and marrow. And of discerning the Word of God discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And suddenly we realize maybe the Word of God isn't so much read by us as it reads us. Interesting, all right? And no creature is hidden from its sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Okay. And if you have been long-time Episcopalians, does this sound like anything in our liturgy? Come on. I highlighted them in blue. I know it's not... Yes. What? Say it. The opening prayer is what's called the Collect for Purity, Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known and from whom no secrets are hid, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of Thy Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love Thee And So at the beginning of our communion liturgy, this comes right at the top, is a theology of the way the Word of God is going to work on us. It's going to cut us open, it's going to expose all our secrets. It's going to cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the Holy Spirit, through Christ our Lord. Right? A robust understanding of the activity, the busyness of the Word of God. I understand that week to week it doesn't always feel like that, but this is the vision. This is the vision for it's almost setting it's like a summary statement, a thesis. This is what's going to happen to you in worship, right? Alright, another important verse. Second Corinthians 3, 6 to 9. So Uh, We want to ask the question, if the word of God is active, what is its activity? 2 Corinthians 3 is a great summary. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters of stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation... The ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. You see this comparison here? You need context a little bit to get it, and we're moving kind of fast. But Paul here is explicating the way the Word of God works. It does two things. It kills and it makes alive. That doesn't sound very seeker sensitive, Pastor Zach. I know it doesn't. It's just what the Word of God does, though, because we need that kind of thing to happen in our lives. Death and resurrection. I don't. You and I, as beautiful as we all look today, don't need just a little cosmetic work, spiritually. We need death and resurrection. You and I need to be told, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead. Dead. Not just, oh, you're kind of bad. You are dead. You are dead and you need Jesus, alright? So uh, the goal of the Word of God, its activity, is to kill and to make alive. Now, that sounds a little weird. Sounds, it sounds like it's a pretty harsh God, you know, killing and making alive. So check out some of these other verses that corroborate this. 1 Samuel 2.6, Hannah's song. The Lord kills and the Lord brings to life. This is a woman who's been barren for a long time. Very much understanding the way the Word of God has worked on her in a very real way. I've never had a baby. And then all of a sudden, Hannah has Samuel in, in her belly and as a precursor to the Magnificat, prays this beautiful prayer. And in the middle of it says, The Lord kills and the Lord brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and He raises up. Deuteronomy 32, 39. See now that God is saying this. See now that I, even I, am He, and there is no God besides me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Whoa. Okay. Defin- God's like, this is who I am. I am the God who kills in order to make alive. And that's important if we're thinking about the negativity of God being a killing God, is that He always has a purpose behind it, and that is to raise us up again, okay? This theology of the Word of God, again, important. So, the Word of God is living and active. It's active. What is is its activity? To kill and to make alive. And what is the end game of that activity? If we look at 2 Corinthians 3, now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. The killing and the making alive is the only way that you and I as human beings will find the freedom that we long for. And I mean every last one of us. We're all scraping and looking for freedom. And we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord Jesus are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Do you hear? The activity of the word of God is to kill and make alive for the purpose of transforming you into the image and likeness of Jesus. That's the end game. So, and the final aspect is the question now is, okay, if the Word of God is living and active, if its activity is to kill and to make alive, how does God prescribe that Word comes to us? How does that Word hit us? What, how does it, what are the means? Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ. Okay? It's really important for the Reformers as well. They believe that it is through hearing that faith comes alive, that the Word works its work of death and life into us. And so, the prayer book's theological vision for worship is this. Worship involves the Word of God acting to bring death to the old being and life to the new. Okay, and I want to pause here and say, through the preaching, reading the scriptures, praying the scriptures, and the sacraments. And this is where we need to understand that the Reformers understood that the Word of God was chiefly and concretely expressed in the scriptures but came to us through the scriptures in a variety of ways. Through the scriptures, it comes through its reading, certainly and maybe preeminently for the Reformers, not maybe, definitely preeminently, through preaching, creaturely preaching, messed up people like me, standing in a pulpit and saying, this is the word of the Lord, in Christ your sins are forgiven, right? Also praying those scriptures and the sacraments, and this is where I want to expand a little bit, our understanding of faith comes through hearing, Because we think that therefore that means it's only through our physical ears. There is a spiritual dynamic at play to the concept of hearing that the Reformers would have wanted you to understand. Luther is quoted as saying this, the ear is the only organ of the Christian. The ear is the only, well, that's weird. I've got a kidney, I've got a mouth, I've got a nose, I've got other things, right? Luther's point was a spiritual point. In all these things, in preaching, in the reading of scriptures, in praying scriptures, and in the sacraments, the goal is that my spirit hears the gospel through these things. You know, so even as I'm looking and tasting the bread and the wine, my soul, my spirit is hearing the gospel. Which is why those words, as I was giving you elements today, and as the other clergy were giving, this is the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is given for you. Preserve your body and soul unto everlasting life. Take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for you. I love saying that to individual people and looking them in the eye. Why? Because I believe as you receive this, Jesus is preaching to you. Jesus is preaching his love and his grace to you. So if that's the overall theology, again, this is the theological vision of what the prayer book is doing. Word of God acting to bring death to your old being, to the flesh that still remains in you that's still saying, I don't need God, I don't need God. Kill Kill that boy, kill that girl. That's what God wants to do with that. And He wants to raise up the new creature, the new Adam, through these means. Very ordinary means. Means that would not impress people who are used to screens and rock shows and, uh, you know, hyper political debates, right? Nevertheless, God said, This is the way. This is the way that I'm going to work this into the world. Through creaturely preaching, reading the scriptures, praying the scriptures, and the sacraments. Which, in the end, brings us to what I would say is the heart of the prayer book. This is what I will try to return us to again and again each week. The heart of the prayer book is to unleash the Word of God, to convert the heart through the power of the gospel. In fact, that was just a summary of what I just said before, but a little more tight. The prayer book's agenda, Thomas Cranmer's agenda, I think the Lord's agenda with our worship at Advent is to let the Word of God fly, (coughs) to let the promise fly, like Kiki the parakeet, like my sermon a few (laughs) weeks ago, to convert the heart. And I'm just not meaning people who aren't Christians yet, but the very non-Christian recesses of your own heart and life that remain in you until death, that need to be addressed for who they are and what they are. You know, I am a Christian, but remaining in me, as Paul said, is the sin in my members, the parts of me that still cry out, I don't need Jesus, I'm going to do this on my own. Worship wants to call that out, put it to death, convert that into, from a heart of stone, as Ezekiel said, to a heart of flesh. I, I would tell you that the old, it's, it's only our human trappings that don't allow us to experience this every week. But theoretically, we should feel like worship converts us every Sunday. I don't know when you came to faith, whether you always grew up in the faith or whether you have a radical testimony. But every Sunday should feel like that radical testimony. I once was blind, but now I can see. You know, that should be the testimony, not, oh, the choir was beautiful. Oh, the liturgy, is, aren't those words fantastic? I don't want you walking out of worship saying that kind of stuff. Because you missed the point. The point is that you're walking out of worship saying, I was dead, but I'm alive. I'm alive. Which is why we say, let us go forth in the name of Christ. Because if you felt that, you're going to burst open those doors and say, hey, Birmingham, look what Jesus did for me. You know? You want that to be the result, the heart, the passion. That's what's behind this prayer book. So before we sing our hymn, one or two questions. Yes?
1: Two quick points. Yeah. You said we were in cahoots with Scotland. The Parliament required that any bishop be taken oath of allegiance to the throne. Uh huh. In England, in 15, when we received our independence, the Church, <coughs> the Episcopal Church of Scotland, required no such pledge. Right. of Allegiance to the throne. So that's why we were we took our apostolic succession from right. Scotland. Right. Yeah. And the second point is. When Cramer created the Book of Common Prayer in 1547, he leaned very, very heavily on praying the hours in the Roman Catholic Church and melded those into morning and evening prayer. Yeah, we'll talk about and that. And used a huge number of the collects that appeared in the Sarum Missal. And that's where we get a lot of our Catholicism, or that which is considered Catholicism.
0: Maybe, but also, I hope to show you, even in those collects, Cramer did a lot of editorial work. Um, and so... Yeah, I'll just leave that there. Good points. Another question? Yeah. Did the American
1: Episcopal Church always have the processionals and those kind of things that you connect with Catholic? Or no. When did that come in?
0: No. Like, Around that time. The time of the Oxford Tractarian Movement. Yes. Sorry. No. Recording. The question was, did the uh, American Church always have processionals like we do? And my answer is no. no. Uh, I
1: don't want to put words in your mouth, but it, it sounds like of the published
0: prayer books, your view is that the 1552 book is sort of gold standard. Yes. The, the, the clarification is, Zach, it sounds like your view is that 1552 uh, is the kind of gold standard. Yes, I think so. I think it's where the, the theology is the tightest and the experience and the ability to hear the gospel is clearest. 1662 is really close, but there were some shifts that took place that I think took the eye off the gospel ball a little bit. Uh, so, yeah. One more question, then we've got to sing. Yes? Oh,
1: I, I don't know how many of y'all went, but when we went, with we paused all to the private churches in England. Yeah. They had, most of the, the
0: churches had the fifteen fifty two. Interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. Good. Um, awesome. Okay. Everyone pull out How Firm a Foundation. We are going to sing together. <laughs> um the reason I want to sing together, and we're just going to sing a cappella, no organ. If, if, you, if you sing uglily, don't worry about that. Just sing out. Why? Because in this is the theology of the Word of God that we talked about. Comfort, killing and making alive. You see these kinds of themes happening. So let's sing verses, gosh, which one do you cut? None. We're singing them all, all right? We're singing them all. I'll start us off. How
1: firm a foundation ye saints of the Lord Is laid for your faith in his excellent word One more can he say than to you he has said To you who for refuge to Jesus have fled Fear not, I am with Thee, O oh, be not dismayed, for I am Thy God and will still give Thee aid. I'll strengthen Thee, help Thee, and cause Thee to stand, upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. When through the deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of woe shall not thee overflow. For I will be with thee, thy trouble to bless and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flames shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. The soul that on Jesus hath fled for repose, I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell, shall endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake a Satan. Put that in your pipe and smoke it, man. <laughs> so good. So good. Okay. Leave
0: me your cards and uh, I'll see you next week.